Friends, welcome. My name is Eddie Chavez Calderon. I am the campaign director of Curry Letzedek, uh, Orthodox Social Justice Organization, with a national bandwidth to be able to bring justice and solidify our Torah each time. Uh, I'm super excited to have uh, our great friend, um, somebody who has been a passionate friend and ally and uh, co-constructor with Uri Litsetic, uh, to be able to bring in so much of, of our work to life. Somebody that I personally, um, I, I really, uh, truly, truly admire and aspire to be just like, um, who, who's just a phenomenal human being. And that that person is our, our great friend, Dr. Doctora Ana Lucia Lopez Rebodero from our great friends at Jutina who if you have not checked out Jutina, you have to, have to, have to take a look at Jutina and, and make sure you give them a follow and subscribe to to some of their their work because it's it's phenomenal and it's 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 really, really, really doing some amazing phenomenal work. And Uriel Tetics are proud to be um a part of it. Yeah, make sure you you look them up. It's uh, jutina.org for their website and at Jutina and uh Jutina and uh CO on the socials. For us, um, make sure you 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 um, go ahead and visit that. All of our websites are going to be tied in together once the recording is over, so you'll be able to click and um, make sure to give them a visit. I want to go ahead and introduce that Dr. Ana Lucia Lopez Rebodero is a Peruvian Chilean American sociologist, born in Peru and raised in Spain and the United States. A scholar of Jewish and Latin American migration, Ana Lucia founded Jutina Ico in 2019 to offer Latin Jews from around the world a community in which to celebrate and explore Latin Jewish multiculturalism. Prior to Jutina Ico, she worked at Jimia, uh, One Table, Bend the Arc, and Center to Advance Racial Equity, and was a global development officer in California's Central Valley in South, uh, Southwestern Mexico and Southwestern Peru. I cannot emphasize how amazing Ana Lucia is. I'm also proud to say that she is my Hevruta, who I get to learn with and continuously engage in, in personal growth and study Torah with and, and really dive deep. Um, Ana Lucia, we are so happy that you are here with us today. Eddie, thank you so much. Uh, first and foremost, that was quite the introduction. Uh, I I love you. It's for everyone that's listening. This this man right here, Eddie Chavez Calderon, is truly a mensch. In you know the definition of a mensch, it's this man right here. And it's been a pleasure over the last gosh, what has it been? Almost four years of being in community with you in deep love of Torah with you as a Havruta and a co-conspirator. Uh, so I'm really excited to be able to be here today and, and do this work, not just uh, to represent this incredible topic and to talk about what's taking place, but also to like lift up this beautiful partnership between Jutina Iko and Uri Litzedek, you know, the, the sole Orthodox organization focused around social justice, which is huge. And I think like what a way in which to observe Torah by centering social justice in the work. I just feel so lucky to be in this in this partnership and in this dreamership with you that we are always uh, a part of together. Phenomenal, phenomenal. So I, I <laughs> really absolutely love and have been following your work, um, watching you travel from across the world. But really interesting, uh, today's topic of exploring diaspora Jews in Latin America. And I know that you have an extensive, extensive knowledge of diving deep into multiple places in Latin America and, and really engaging deeply with a lot of the community, the Jewish community in Latin America. What has been the, the biggest shock and surprise to you from visiting um, different communities across Latin America? And I even dare to say, um, you know, throw in things that have surprised you a lot and, and things that positively have, have really grounded you. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Aglaia. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and Eddie is awesome. For those who can't see the, the <laughs> comment, Aglaia knows what's up. Um, so I'll for, go off, I want to start off by just clarifying a couple of things. Um, you know, the, the topic of today's session is exploring the diaspora, uh, Jewish community of Latin America. And I want to define Latin America as being uh, both Spanish and Portuguese speaking Latin America. So uh, part of the world that was colonized and sought independence from Spain and Portugal. And that's a really critical part of the story that I'm going to go into. And then also when it comes to diaspora, um, you know, Jews are seen as diasporic people, meaning that they're 
if we're looking at diaspora, it means that they live outside of their homeland and the homeland for most the way in which to describe diaspora is Israel, like what modern day Israel is today. And so we're talking about um, folks, Jews who live outside of that space, who have made their way to Latin America through migration. And of course, today we've got a lot of folks who have who's been who spent generations in Latin America and now have moved to different places, including Israel homeland. So it's interesting to think about diaspora in that sense as well. And so I'm I'm, I'm bringing those things in because I think it's it's great to just kind of get the nuance around these these two things that we're talking about. Now, I also love that we're not just talking about immigration. I'm, of course, I'm that's I'm, just to share a little bit about my background. I'm a sociologist. My my passion uh, as an immigrant myself, as a proud immigrant, as a someone who is the daughter and granddaughter and great granddaughter of immigrants, um, I'm just fascinated by human movement and the ways in which we call home and the way, like what, how we call places home and how we bring with us things that are important to us, kind of that like immigrant identity and, and how those things survive. And so that's just to give you a little bit of information as to who I am and how I approach the subject. So I think like Latin America, let's just begin by saying it is an incredibly diverse community that today is oftentimes tied by language. And so the majority of Latin America, and when I say Latin America, I'm thinking about Central America. So Mexico through Central America, so which is the South, which is Panama, and then South America, which begins with Colombia and it goes all the way down to Argentina and, and Chile and the, and the southern part of the continent. And also Spanish speaking um, Caribbean, so Puerto Rico, Cuba, República Dominicana, uh, these regions are, are critical to the experience of, of Latin Jews. And it's, it's, it's critical to say that really the story people ask, like, when does the story begin? Um, and Eddie, you might have to remind me of your question because I'm just kind of starting a little bit with this background. So I'm like, okay, we're, I, I remember now, where's the place that's impacted me? I'll get to that. Um, but the story oftentimes when I talk about Latin American Jewry and Judina Ico is a national organization with international roots and our goal is to nurture Latin Jewish community, identity, leadership, and resiliency. And one of the first things that I often hear when talking about Judina or presenting Judina for people to people for the first time, it's, um, oh, like Latin American Jews, like you mean Sephardic Jews or you speak Ladino and there's this immediate association with Sephardim. Um, and also Ladino, because Ladino, for those folks who might not know, is a pan-Mediterranean Jewish language that originated in Sepharad, which is today Iberian Peninsula or Spain and Portugal. And it's a language that um, also has shifted based on Jewish migration, but because of its familiarity with Spanish and Portuguese, oftentimes it is assumed that all Jews in Latin America are Sephardic. And, and that's actually not true um, by any means, though. I want us to put a little asterisk here because it's an important conversation to have and to, and to revisit. Um, but it's also important to note that a lot of the story around Jewish Latin America does begin with the connection to what was taking place during the Inquisition. So in, in 1492, uh, when the Alhambra decree was, was passed and essentially deemed it illegal for, for Jewish practice to be a part of the, the new united forces of, of Castilla and Leon, I mean, modern day Spain, you know, people either had to convert to Judaism or flee. And so a lot of the folks who could have converted to Judaism or could, could have converted to Christianity, but still felt like they weren't able to get a fair shot or be seen as true Christians made their way to Latin America, as did a number of people who hadn't fully converted or who refused to and wanted to, to, to move to a place of refuge. Now, unfortunately, this wasn't documented in the same way that a lot of other things have been documented because you're talking about communities that lived in fear. So communities who um, practiced um, in their homes or who practiced um, in silence with other families, but of course, in a, in a way that truly protected their anonymity. Um, but we have found over the years, a number of different things that have indicated Jewish early Jewish life in Latin America. And so, for example, in Tasco, which is a region in, in Mexico, which is about two to three hours from Mexico City, um, there was a mikvah that was found from, you know, early um, 17th century mikvah 
And so there we go to see, it's like, oh, so there, there has been people here and how are people arriving? Yes. People were arriving with the, with the new explorers. And, and, and that's just one example of different things that have been uh, found throughout Latin America, hints of Jewish life, as well as oral traditions. Um, People, you know, for some random reason, finding out that they don't eat, their family just doesn't eat pork or finding out that on Shabbat on Friday night through Saturday, they just don't work or that they like candles on Friday night. Like these are all oral histories that have been passed down and sometimes without a direct connotation, but there is faith there. And I think that that's an important piece that we can't deny. And so I I definitely think that that's part of the the Latin American story. Um, Of course, another big part of just going off of the the conversation around immigration, uh, there is a number of migration that takes place in the late 19th century as well as the early 20th century. So, you know, as was happening in the rest in in the former Soviet Union and um, in the Russian Empire, there was a number of pogroms that were taking place that leading to political instability throughout Eastern Europe. And many, many Jews specifically from that region fled through to Latin America, mainly settling in Argentina, in Brazil and Uruguay, forming strong communities and contributing to various sectors of society. Um, even before that, like in in the in the mid nineteenth century, there was a movement to get kind of this this kibbutz style like um, experience in Entre Rios, which is in, in Argentina. And the whole point of this was to get folks out of those programs, but to also kind of follow that. Um, that idea of building together. And that's an interesting thing because a lot of the Jews that were moving there were not moving from the same dire reasons. They were moving to just get different types of opportunities. And of course they were experiencing um, a lot of anti-Semitism in their communities, but it's it's an interesting piece because those Jews that made their way to, to Entre Rios in Argentina is a fascinating, they're, they're people who, it's a true fascinating tale of migration, settlement, um, but essentially, just to, to give you a little bit about that is those colonies were highly supported. It was a development project by Baron Hirsch, um, who it was an agricultural, an agricultural colonization project. And the whole part of, of this Jewish philanthropist of, of Baron Maurice de Hirsch really aimed at resettling these Jewish communities in other parts of the world because they thought, you know, why not try to create this kind of homeland experience and perhaps we can create it through the work and this starting to you know, imagine this kibbutz lifestyle and create these colonies. And essentially um, a lot of families moved there without knowing where they were going and ended up after a couple, a generation uh, moving out of Entre Rios, which is really this uh, farmland and moving into the bigger cities around Argentina, whether it was Cordoba or whether it was Buenos Aires. And so we also started to see mass migration to the bigger cities of Argentina um, before the, the the migration that took place because of the pogrom. So it's just interesting to know that there's all of these like asterisks with like, actually this happened first and this happened then. Um, and similarly, during that time, during the 19th century, there was this rubber boom that was exploding throughout, throughout the Amazons in Latin America. And many, many Moroccan Jews, specifically men, single men, made their ways to Latin America, to Brazil, to Peru, to work in this, in, 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 um, El caucho, the the rubber boom, and it you know intermarried with different communities, and it's been amazing to see communities in which these families lived maintain through a patrilineal spirit Jewish traditions. So it this is all taking place as I mentioned, nineteenth twentieth century, and of course uh, we see even the, the the mass migration that takes place as a result of the world wars. Um, we've got, you know, post World War One, the massive migration of Jews living in the Ottoman Empire from Syria, from Lebanon, from Turkey, um, from from Egypt, like who Syrians, Syrian Jews who had moved to Egypt, also making their way towards Latin America, and then of course World War Two, seeing true that Jewish migration. Um, fleeing the Shoah, what was taking place in Europe, and trying to connect with different Jewish communities wherever it was that they could, oftentimes not knowing when they were going to Latin America, or oftentimes not really knowing where in Latin America they were going. So I think that's kind of like a little bit of a basis in terms of like migration in in the shortest amount of time in 10 minutes as to like how that took place. But it's been interesting because today, here we are, 2023, 
And it's been interesting as myself as a historian, as a sociologist, uh, and as they, the founder and executive director of an organization that truly works to preserve Latin American jewelry, to see how what Jewish life is like today. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, oftentimes people will, will, will think, you know, oh, Latin Jews, they speak, they're Sephardic or they speak Ladino. In actuality, today, when it comes to Jews that are uh, part of traditional Jewish communities in Latin America, the majority of those cultural institutions are actually um, headed by and, and led by Ashkenazi Jews. And of course, there's communities that are that, that have had to uh, mix in a liturgical way. So Sephardim or Syrian Jews and Ashkenazi Jews. But for some time, a lot of these communities stayed pretty separate in Buenos Aires, in Sao Paulo, in, in um, Panama, in Mexico. It wasn't, it wasn't um, this idea that just because they were Jewish, they were coming together and they were sharing the same cultural centers or going to the same synagogues or going to the same educational institutions. There was quite a desire to live life the way they knew life. And, and it looked different for each community. Some spoke Yiddish, uh, some spoke Arabic, some spoke Ladino. Uh, and even that varied based on like what country of origin folks were from. So it wasn't like a flat, like, you know, universal, this is the only way in which Yiddish is spoken or the only way in which Ladino is spoken. So again, just to further complicate so much of these things and complicate it in a beautiful way. Now, to answer your question, because I want us to go to that question, and hopefully that leads to some really great <laughs> follow-up questions. What has been the most impactful for me? Like, wow. I think um, it's interesting because in Buenos Aires, which has the largest Jewish community in Latin America, we are looking at a community where you can live a very rich Jewish life and do so through a fully secular lens, meaning you can be not just secular, but maybe even go as far as to say like atheist, right? Like really like anti-belief in God. And at the same at the same time, still be truly immersed in Jewish life, whether it's through camp, whether it's through synagogues, because it's a cultural experience, a cultural expression. And with the size, right? Like the community in Argentina at different points in time um, have ranged from 150,000 to 300,000 Jews living in, um, in the community throughout the different, throughout the country in different large cities, mainly in Buenos Aires. That's huge. And I think it, it just shows that it's the size of the community that really allows for this widespread experience, Jewish experience. Right. I'm from Peru. Our community, you know, now um, in 2023, we're looking at just under 2000, close to like 1800 Jews. And that's small. And what that means is that you don't have as much liberty to experience Judaism in different ways. There's like one there's different communities and there's one community that ends up being kind of the the one size fits all that's the most progressive. But when you compare it to other, if you're looking through like an American movement context, it, it actually feels a lot more conservative or modern orthodox. It just feels like that's where people can, um, people of, of more diverse backgrounds can fit their space. And I think, again, that just goes with how, how big a community is. And that's always, it's something, the biggest thing that I'm always looking at is how, what's, how does the size of this community impact the way in which people integrate themselves and how people can dare to push the boundaries around Jewish identity. Thank you so much. And just to follow up with that, what are your like what are your observations around observancy? Are Jewish communities across Latin America observing the same way that we see, I guess, from a grounding of, of observancy in Jewish life here in the United States? Servants varies. Um, it, it truly does. The way in which Jewish life, what it looks like and feels like in Mexico City, which is the third largest Jewish community in Latin America, uh, is very different. Looks looks like and feels very different than it does in in Buenos Aires, um, than it does in Panama City. And those are communities that actually are quite diverse ethnically when it comes to Jewish tradition. So we're talking about Jew, uh, communities that have large Ashkenazim. Uh, community, large Syrian communities and large uh, Sephardic communities that are not Syrian, that actually separate, right? And so, um, but the approach is different. Um, just recently um, in Mexico, like Mexico, I, I just recently learned, it's like one of the communities that is staying pretty steady in numbers. And it's actually, yes, people are are leaving, are, are emigrating from, from Mexico, but at the same time, the community, the religious community 
the Orthodox community is, is growing. Um, and, and at the same time with that, the more progressive community is shrinking because there is just like a, either they're, they're leaving or they're seeing the direction in which the, the, the community is going and are choosing otherwise, or don't feel like there's a space for them. And um, also the politics of a particular community truly impacts the way a Jewish community works. Mexico is still a fairly conservative country. All of country, all of the countries in Latin America are largely Catholic countries. And Mexico, as I said, is, is still truly conservative. And so when we're talking about LGBTQ rights, um, that's not something that's really at the forefront of the thinking of thinking for a lot of Jewish institutions in a place like Mexico City. And it's not that there aren't any LGBTQ Jews in Mexico City. Of course there are. Um, but that's kind of like that disconnect versus Argentina, which is much more progressive in so many different ways. You know, they live through a dictatorship. And so the the community, the the baseline for community is is much more progressive. And so certain social aspects, feel are, are, are um, become part of the Jewish communities as well. Of course, I'm not saying that there aren't any, that there isn't any anti-LGBT or homophobia sentiment in, in, in Argentina or in the, the Buenos Aires Jewish community. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that the, the politics of the country influence more of the, the average thinking of the Jewish community there. So I think that's also really important to know. And you see that throughout Latin America as well, based on the countries in which people live. Totally. Thank you so much. And I think there, there's a common uh, a, a common occurrence when um, whenever I'm in communities and I talk about uh, Jews from Latin America, I'll, I almost always get that people will respond with the thing, well, there's a lot, they're all conversos. How do you get that as well? And what is the actual reality of that? Because oftentimes yes. we hear that there is um, the Jews of Latin America are all conversos. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think it's a common um, myth that um, yes. doesn't really get talked about in our communities. Yes. And that, that's actually perfect because it also leads me to another thing I want to chat about. So the converso thing is very similar to what I was mentioning earlier around the, you know, all Latin Jews are Sephardic, right? There are Jews who made their way uh, via the Inquisition. And then that's, they set, um, you know, shop in, you know, in, sorry, in Latin America. And, you know, today they are the descendants of people who escaped the Inquisition. Or some people would say conversos as well. Conversos were essentially like Christian people who were Jewish who converted to Christianity and then um, still left um, Spain and Portugal. Mostly that word really comes from the Spanish experience um, because they weren't being accepted as everyday Christians in Spain. And so they moved to Latin America because Latin America needed people and it was gonna be easier for them. So that's kind of that, that what I was mentioning earlier. And I'll re reiterate, like there's no way of us truly knowing um, the experience of Jews who left the inquisition who, because of the Inquisition, left the Iberian Peninsula and made their way to Latin America. There's no way. There is. Um, there's been a couple of different uh, studies that have been done. There, you know, in Brazil, they they uh, found that it's a possibility that I forget the exact stat, but a significant number of people could have Jewish ancestry to some degree. And so, again, I want to reiterate: there is no, there is no current thing that can test for that. Like, you know, people will take ancestry DNA tests at time and we'll find out that they're 99% Ashkenazi Jewish or like European Jewish. And um, some tests have started to try to create uh, signifiers for, for uh, Sephardic communities that are coming from just most recent migration from like North Africa or the Levant. But when it comes from people from the from Inquisition, so we're talking like 16th century migration, it's very difficult to know. So th there is no way of knowing that. Now, I, I say this, it's also important to know that a big portion of our community of Latin Jews in the United States or in Latin America can be people who didn't grow up Jewishly, but were called to Judaism, right? So they either converted to Judaism, um, they returned to Judaism, they're a Jew by choice, whatever terminology they wish to use, they did not grow up Jewish in their household, but something called them to it, whether it was a belief that their family were conversos or were crypto Jews, meaning Jews who never converted, but were practicing in silence. Um, you know, I think that that's, that's just one of those things of our community that 
we don't need to be so reliant on, on proof about, right. If like, if they're choosing Judaism today, then that's where we should, we should be supporting our community. And however it is that they make sense of that, I think is, is beautiful and important and we should make space to listen to. Um, now I want to add one other element to this conversation about people who've chosen Judaism or converted to Judaism is that I just went through a brief history of, of a very brief history of migration to Latin America. But what we're seeing also throughout Latin America is a number of Jewish communities that have been, um, some people will call it satellite communities. Some people will call it emergent Jewish communities. And essentially what, what those, what those terms mean are groups of people like mass communities that converted to Judaism um, who did not grow up Jewish, who did not start off as a congregation that was Jewish. Oftentimes uh, Christians or evangelical Christians or evangelical. Yeah, I think. And then um, they will convert um, as, as a mass. So we see that we've seen this take place in Colombia. Um, there's a real, there's vibrant communities throughout Colombia, including one that I have had the privilege of spending time with the Bello community, which is right outside of Medellin. Um, we also see this in Armenia and El Salvador. Um, we also see this in Peru. There's this community called the Inca Jews. We also see this in, in Brazil. There's like a number of different communities that have um, converted as a big group of people and in an attempt to be seen as 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 Jewish, like really Jewish. And, and I hate to even say those terms, but like I'm going to use quotations around like what really Jewish is. They've sought uh, approval um, by Israeli rabbinate, which means Orthodox Jews, and essentially have converted through an Orthodox lens, which on one hand has given them the opportunity to convert in a way that most people will see as like the most strict form of conversion or the most Shomer style of conversion. And a critique is that, you know, it's being done through an Orthodox lens, which often means an Eastern European lens, which often means a very male dominated lens, and which often means uh, at the sacrifice of their local culture without being able to really create local identity as to what their community could look like. And so I think that that's like a really important and beautiful discussion that's being had, but also these communities are part of the Latin American Jewish experience. It would be ridiculous to think that they're not. Um, but that, but it's important to say that because it's not an easy thing for a lot of Jewish communities it's not an easy concept for a lot of Jewish communities that have been that are known as the traditional Jewish communities to accept these groups of converts, oftentimes because of um, fear of things changing within their within their community, oftentimes because of you know racism, oftentimes because of classism. There is a dislike for this, a lot of these groups to take place and uh, for for groups to like integrate themselves into these traditional communities that have been led over the last 200 years, uh, less than 200 years by, um, by different ways of, of, of Jewish mi immigrants, migrants. Uh, it's just interesting to see because we're, we're seeing this take place, but they are part of the Latin American Jewish experience today. And it, this conversation really couldn't take place without naming them as well. Thank you so much. And now like the common, common thing that always gets asked, um, how how are communities dealing with anti-Semitism in these spaces? And is it is it the yeah. same as what we're used to saying of the same anti-Semitic tropes that we deal in in the States? You know, I think it really depends on the person that you're asking. Um, this question always comes up in all of the conversations I have with my peers or people that I meet around, you know, because they'll ask about the United States and how anti-Semitism, is it really that bad in the United States or like what's going on, you know, and and um, and there has been a heightened a desire to 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 talk more and like and name when anti-Semitism takes place. I'll say that in Latin America, anti-Semitism exists. Uh, it always has, but it it does for me. It does look and feel different. I think oftentimes because I mentioned earlier, you know, Latin America is still largely as a whole largely conservative and largely Catholic community. Oftentimes, the anti-Semitism comes from a misguided belief that it is because of Jews that Jesus Christ was, was um, crucified, right? And so then they're, they affiliate, they associate Jews with, with that. Now, I do think that's changing. And I think oftentimes it looks, feels different in, in cities uh, where the rate of education is a lot higher than it would look in like in smaller towns where, um, you know, they don't, the, that critical, 
that ability to like think and, and, and argue critically hasn't really been tested as much or people haven't been offered that same opportunity. Um, but I also see it, for example, in other ways like, um, well, people will just assume, oh, you know, like Jews, like they never really want to be with anyone else. They always just kind of be with, are with one another, or they will only want to go to their schools or they want to eat with their food. You know, they're like too good to eat with our forks. You know, there's kind of like this feeling around, especially, especially when cash root becomes like a part of it, because there's these layers of separation between community, like the rest of society and, and, um, and local community. So I see this a lot for example, in Chile, which is where my grandmother was from. Um, she was born in Santiago and she grew up actually not so far from the, uh, for, for context, Santiago, Chile is also the largest, the city with the largest number of Palestinian, um, of, of, of Palestinians from the diaspora, right? They have the largest diasporic Palestinian community. This is in Santiago, Chile. And Palestinians in, in Santiago are truly integrated. Like there are Palestinian restaurants like all over the, um, the city. Um, you know, they marry non-Palestinians. Um, you know, they, they speak Spanish and they also speak Arabic at home. Um, they're, some of them keep halal, not all of them do. And, and the Jewish community in Chile is, and also the community, the Palestinian community is like, I think it nears a million in, in Chile. So it's large. And when it comes to the Jewish community, we're looking at a community that's like less than 20,000 um, and, you know, pretty much live in, in, in a pretty affluent area in Santiago and Las Condes and like the community center is there. Um, not everyone keeps cash root, but the, a lot of people do. And so there, there is there is a lot they're a lot more segregated from the rest of Jewish life. It doesn't mean they're not integrated. And a lot of Jews do in, in Santiago and in Chile do are do hold public office and are you know, not just thinking about their life as a Jew in Chile. They're also thinking of their life as a Chilean, right? Um, but they, there is this comparison to like, oh, you know, here's one community who's like integrated and really does like well for the, the, the country. And then here's another one that feels like a lot more separate or elitist. And then there's anti-Semitism that comes from this, like, oh, you all think you're too good for this, or um, you're, for us, or you only care about your interest. And, and then of course, given the fact that you're so far away from Israel, and then you see this like large community of, of folks who have been displaced from their homeland as well, there are there is this um, often fueled, but also lack of information, not having the opportunity to talk to a lot of different people, easy assumptions around Jews, which do lead to anti-Semitism and in ways that people don't even realize, right? So not necessarily in like violent acts, but really in just kind of day-to-day -day thinking around how Jews operate and how Jews want, uh, what Jews' loyalty is to the country and to the community and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Thank you so much. Now I want to really talk about, um, how Jewish culture has influenced a lot of, of places wherever we are. And in my favorite language, which is food. And how how much of, of Jewish influence have you seen that has impacted food around Latin America? So this is also one of my love languages, food. And, and Jewish food has a special, is a special dialect of this love language. <laughs> um, so I think it's interesting because. I think there, what's truly becoming Latin American Jewish food is something of our generation, of folks who um, who are children of or grandchildren of Jewish immigrants to Latin America, who have really truly grown up with their grandparents' kitchen and also being a part of local culture and seeing similarities and then wanting to blend them and wanting to fuse them and wanting to have fun with them. And then of course, there's a lot of Latin American Jews who have left Latin America, many, many who live in the United States, close to 400,000, many who have moved to Israel, who've made Aliyah, many who have moved to other parts of the world. And in that process, they've realized, my goodness, when I was in Latin America, the thing that contrasted me, that I was, a, that, you know, that was big contrast that was that I was Jewish. But now that I'm in the United States or that I'm in Europe or that I'm in Israel, another thing that distinguishes me is it's not so much just the Jewish piece. It's also that I'm Latin American and I've got this community and this culture that is influenced by so many things. So I say that because I think a lot of it is, is shifting even more now 
given how many people are, are moving um, and the rate in which people are moving. So some of my favorite things that I've seen over the last, I mean, since over the last 37 years as, as a, a person that's been a lot, that's, you know, lived in the world is these fusions. And some of my favorites have been during um, Hanukkah. Uh, so I grew up in the United States and a big part of like my remembering of like Jewish life has been in the United States is what I mean. And latkes are, are something that I always see during Hanukkah time. And I actually, I come from a Sephardic background. My family um, le- left the Inquisition, made their way to, um, to the Netherlands, to Amsterdam, made their way to Curacao, made their way to, to Latin America, to South America. Um, so by heritage or by ethnic Jewish identity, latkes wasn't something that we did, but it's something that I've adopted as being part of a society that does value or is latkes are synonymous with Hanukkah. And I've loved over the years seeing how people keep that, but also bring in things that are local to themselves. Like, you know, potatoes are indigenous to, to South America, to Peru. And so I've loved seeing latkes that are made with purple potatoes. And I've loved seeing latkes that are made with sweet potato. That's actually my favorite or latkes that are made with plantains in the Caribbean, because that's just much more accessible and cheaper and, and also fun to be able to kind of like create this different way of doing uh, latka. It's something that we recognize, but also is an ode to our community. Um, similarly, during Hanukkah, something that I love is sufganiyot and seeing sufganiyot rather than it being sufganiyot or spenge, um, rather than it being, you know, this jelly donut that's stuffed with you know, cherry or strawberry jam, um, stuffed with like guava or stuffed with pineapple. And so it's just like this take this like Caribbean, uh, we really see this in, in Venezuela, uh, because, you know, they're a Caribbean community. Caracas is like a Caribbean city that, uh, where there was a large Moroccan community. And so Sucanio, but then, and having these tropical fruits is like, makes sense. Um, a couple of years ago, we had the, the privilege of working with with uh, Chef Fanny uh, Gerson, who is based out of New York. And we had this uh, amazing workshop around making tres leches babka. So when you hear tres leches, it's like, oh yeah, especially if you're Mexican, you're like, oh, I know what tres leches is. You like immediately have a picture in your head. And if you're Jewish in the United States and you hear babka, even if you're not Ashkenazi, you know, you know what babka is. They sell it at Trader Joe's. Even non-Jews know what babka is. And so but there is babka is such a, a Jewish thing. And so when you when you combine something like this, which is babka, it's like 100% Jewish and 100% Mexican. And that's just, that's exciting because it doesn't have to be like one or the other. Um, of course, we also have like a number of different things that have gone like unchanged. We've got like uh, communities eat gefilte fish all throughout Latin America, chopped liver, um, umitas, which is essentially like savory corn tamales that are, that are typically filled with a mixture of like corn, onions, cheese, and spices and Jewish communities. Umitas are, um, also sometimes prepared with ingredients like matzo meal, barekas, as I mentioned, we've got a huge migration of, of Turkish Jews. So, you know, Jews who, who came from, as a result of the fall of the Ottoman empire in world war one, barekas like, hello, yes, these flaky, you know, pastries filled with a wide range of ingredients are things that you're always going to see. Um, I've also seen, for example, in Cuba, there was such a large community of, um, of, of, of crypto Jews, um, and then Jews who came you know, from Turkey and things like, um, um, oh my gosh, why am I like forgetting the name right now? But the, the most traditional m- meal in, in Cuba, which is essentially like meat and, um, and rice that's like eaten is something that would be eaten during Shabbat because it would be prepared on one day and then be eaten the next day. And that was, you know, that's what we were being done. So just like some people were eating chulent in Cuba, you know, they were eating ropa vieja. Thank you. I just like completely, they were came back ropa vieja, which is like pulled beef and easy to make and easy to eat. And people loved it. So just kind of going to show, like, there's so many different things that you can see. Um, you know, other things that I've loved are matzo ball soup, but made with like ají or, or chile, like jalapeño to make it a little bit spicier. Um, I've also loved seeing, you know, gefilte fish, but served a la veracruzana, which, you know, in, in Mexico, that means like this tomato sauce that kind of goes over this fish. But when you make a filter fish and you kind of top it over with that red sauce, it's like a hundred percent 
Mexican and hundred percent Jewish. Right. And, and if, and if, you know, you know, like if you're there, you like see it, you know, some people might, who are not Mexican might be like, why is, why is there red sauce on the gefilte fish? But if you're Mexican and Jewish, you're like, oh, I know what's happening here. And that's, that's a pretty exciting thing. That's phenomenal. I, I, that is uh, one of the most beautiful things that, cause I think that a common, a common uh, dialect that I love that you 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 shared because I think it's so beautiful because it's a dialect that anybody can understand. It's a dialect that food can bring us together in so many ways and so many beautiful ways that, that truly transform the way that we start to connect with each other. So now my final and follow up question for you, Ana Lucia. Oftentimes we hear, "Well, we're just Jewish. Why are we highlighting Latin Jews? We're just Jewish. Why don't we just say that we're Jewish?" Why is it important for you and your mission to really concretely uplift and highlight the beauty of Latin American Jews? Yeah, I think for me, it's because we're not just Jewish. Um, for uh, for me specifically, like we are people who have lived all over the world. We are people who have, um, as a result of you know, sometimes not the greatest circumstances, whether it's been like forced migration or desire to have a new opportunity for a desire for adventure, we have found ourselves in different places and Judaism is what's kept us um, going. And at the same time, we've also been, we're social people. We are people of we are, we are people's people. We've connected with so many different communities. We've also contributed to different communities. So we're not just Jewish. Uh, we're not just one peoplehood. We're peoplehoods. We're people who represent so many experiences, so many ways of doing Jewish. And we're not just consumers of Judaism. We're always co-creating Judaisms, right? And so I think that that's an exciting thing for us to think about. And when it comes to Latin Jewry or when it comes to any affinity what people will call like affinity spaces, right? So in terms of like Jews from a particular region, I think there's something really beautiful. We have a responsibility to preserve Jewish multiculturalism. And Jews, as I as I will always say, are a multicultural people. We always have been. And it is our our role, I think, as a, as a community to be inspired by our journey and to ensure that that story is never forgotten because we're not just Jewish. Uh, we're so much more. And when we really are able to, to see that, uh, and to celebrate that, we're able to not just do a lot of uh, self-preservation, but also build a lot of important ties with different communities, which I think in a day and age in which, especially at a time in which anti-Semitism feels like it's on a rise, our, our ability to connect with so many other communities is something that we can't deny. We're a bridge to so many worlds, and that's an exciting and, and a place that, you know, it's a responsible, it's a responsibility for us, and it's something that we're really passionate about. Thank you so much, Ana Lucia. Uh, it is always an incredible plethora and beautiful flavors of knowledge that you bring into the table. And I just absolutely love that. Friends, I want to open it up to questions from folks either on Facebook or on um, our, our chat here directly. Please feel free to unmute yourself and ask a question. I know uh, Ana Lucia is super excited to answer and we would love to help. Mm -hmm. you. So go ahead, friends. If you have any questions, send us uh, to us directly, either on our Facebook or on the chat here on our Zoom. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, we got one from Facebook, Ana Lucia. Uh, the okay. question is, have you ever felt unsafe in any Latin American country as a Jew? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I will say it's important to note that I was born uh, in Peru. I left Peru when I was two years old. I uh, spent the next three years of my life in Spain, and then I moved to the United States. So a lot of my remembering around feeling unseen or unsafe uh, was specifically around me being an immigrant in the United States and me being a woman of color in the United States. And so I, my idea around feeling unsafe as a Jew wasn't something that was the first thing that was coming up for me. As a result of that, I think when I travel throughout Latin America and because I, you know, I've lived in Latin America and I feel I have family that lives in Latin America, I feel very integrated to Latin America. Um, I don't ever feel unsafe because as a Jew, because I, I grew up with this mental freedom that I think a lot of Americans do, you know, despite the rise in antisemitism, we do live, a, a, our access to Jewish life is so rich in the United States. And 
there is this potentially, some people might call it this level of um, over sobre confianza, like a lot of like uh, trust in, in people or, um, you know, that's like at its best or like at its worst, like naiveness, which I disagree with. Um, but no, I don't. Now, of course, I've had friends that I've been with who have felt unsure as to how to um, talk about being Jewish in Latin America or feel like maybe it's better for them to keep that quiet. I've never kept that quiet. In fact, I've found, I have found that when I've been able to talk about it, there's been a lot of curiosity and there's been a lot of um, things, um, misconceptions that I'm able to, in that moment, create greater awareness at greater, greater awareness of. And I think that that's the decision, a decision that I make. Um, and so for me, like that hasn't been something that I felt any, and I've traveled the only country in Latin America I have not been to is Venezuela. So, you know, I, and I've experienced Jewish life in all of the communities that I've been in. So that there is, you know, goes to show something. Um, and again, like that doesn't necessarily mean that that might not be someone else's experience. They might feel a level of trepidation. Yeah. Thank you. We have more questions um, coming in. What is something that has kept the Jewish community together and successful within Latin American communities? Mm -hmm. I think um, Latin American Jewish communities, you know, as there's a, I mentioned a lot of things that can be very difficult about them. Uh, oftentimes are pretty closed off. They're, they historically have been, you know, there's in, in many places, um, marrying like an Ashkenazi, marrying a Sephardic or a Syrian person was likely not only not seen, but also seen as like intermarriage. Um, so it's like, that's a, a very real thing that has shifted over time. Um, but I do think that despite those, those pieces, the community really rallies around itself and really supports people. And when people have gone through, and I know this from family members, from friends who have experienced at different points in time, uh, varying levels of whether it's financial uh, stability or familial, um, they've been really supported by the Jewish community, which I think is really beautiful. And I also think that in the smaller communities, there is this desire for people to be connected. And a lot of times, um, like I'm, I'm from Lima and we've, our Jewish school in Lima is just recently started um, admitting uh, people from like interfaith families. I, like that wasn't a thing when I was growing up or when my mom was growing up. Um, but I, I do think that like, there is this like effort to want to keep the community in some capacity going. You know, I just mentioned there's like, like 1800 Jews in Lima and like that's that feels really small but there's like this desire to make it work and it doesn't mean that everyone is on board but I do think that for the most part communities are wanting to support the community that's there uh and and ultimately I I, I think that there's levels of you know Shabbat like as a young adult in Latin America I always I'm able to find a place like Shabbat has really kept the Jewish people all throughout the world and I think Latin America is not and is not an that's not an exception there um and I really do feel it and when you're able to combine the hospitality of Shabbat with Jew with Latino hospitality it's like a whole other level of hospitality that I feel so proud to experience and to be able to also share with others Wonderful. Thank you. I'm going to go ahead and acknowledge our chat. Our friend Jane oh, yeah. said, I was born in Lima in 1945. Oh, nice. I grew up having lots of friends in large Jewish communities. There is a fictional novel about a family in Mexico that has many traditions, but they don't know the origins. And they are Jewish traditions. Fascinating introduction to the diaspora in Mexico. And I can't oh, nice. remember the title of the book. Thank you so much for that comment. Janie is a, uh, an amazing human being. And Aglaia says, you, one of the ladies at my local synagogue made a comment about American Jews are the white are, are white people. And uh, matter of fact said that 20% of American Jews are uh, POC. Wasn't thinking about how Louisiana people react to facts about POC. And there were two Latino families there that were that night. Thank you so much for that comment, Aglaia. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, uh, friends, we can continue to have uh, one or two more questions. Uh, so uh, please keep sending them in as uh, we have this amazing opportunity to have such a phenomenal uh, guest speaker with Ana Lucia um, coming in. So I appreciate all of you. Please send in all your questions. We will get those answered. 
Okay, another question just came in, Alucia. What was your favorite synagogue to visit in Latin America? Mm. Wow. Okay, so it's not a historic, like I think sometimes when people, when I'm hearing that question, I'm thinking I'm like a, you know, a historic super old synagogue. I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about just the place where I felt like the most at home. And that was Amichai in Buenos Aires. And it's this community that is just, ah, uh, so vibrant and there's singing and there's, it's a packed house. Like, let me tell you, when we are, when we spend time in Buenos Aires, when we, sometimes we call Buenos Aires home, when we are there, that I've never seen a synagogue more full than I've seen there. And we're talking about people who that's how they want to start their Friday night. They want to go to Shoal and then they want to, they want to pray. They want to sing. They want to be in community. And then they go out to their, you know, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock dinner. Um, and, you know, people are still arriving. Let's say services start at 7 PM. You know, people are still arriving at 7:40. Like, did we miss it? Did we miss the sermon yet? And it, it's just a, a beautiful, um, a beautiful experience that if you find yourself there, I would, you know, if I wanted to relate it to like a movement, I probably would relate it to somewhere between conservative reform reconstructions. I don't know. It's definitely, I hate relating it to a movement because I feel like sometimes people have preconceived notions about that, but it's, there's no machitza. Um, there is a lot of singing. So there are instruments. If, if that's not something that you're into, I can understand that being a little bit more difficult, but if you find yourself there and you're open to that, I highly recommend it. Thank you so much, friends. Looks like we are on our time. I appreciate each and every one of you who are joining and are listening on our recording. Thank you so much for continuing to support our work. And I highly, highly, highly cannot um, end this without recommending that you follow Jutina and Co's work as they are really, truly uh, innovating a lot of Jewish life and highlighting a lot of of um, Jewish and uh, Latin American life. Uh, so many beautiful speakers, Ana Lucia. I cannot emphasize that you need to check out the Voces podcast with Ana Lucia because it is incredible. Uh, there's some really cool people on there. I don't know, you may hear- Including hear Eddie. <laughs> uh, on, on the podcast, but I, um, uh, I really emphasize that you need to check out the amazing work coming out of Jutina and Co. Yeah, to... Go ahead, Ana Lucia. Oh, no, no, no. Keep going. <laughs> uh, highlight the amazing work that's coming out of, of Jutina from um, the leadership development to highlighting stories to, to really emphasizing the wholeheartedness of being proudly Jewish and Latin American. So um, I, I appreciate Ana Lucia. I appreciate all of you for being on this uh, phenomenal class. And we hope to learn with you again soon. Thank you, everybody. And have a Thank phenomenal you. day. Thank you so much. Gracias, Ana Lucia. Thank you so much. Muchas gracias. Ciao, ciao. Care, everybody. Bye-bye.